Good morning. Wait a minute. Am I at home? I didn't hear nobody. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. There we go. <laughs> so tired. What did you say? It's an hour early. Well, you telling me? You know how I do things. Guess what time I was up this morning? Or what time I went to bed? And set that hour. And went, oh no. I got to get up in three hours. That's not good. All right. So, marriage in the law. I was out of town last week, so I listened to Mike about three or four times. And he's good. This morning we out. We'll leave now. How about that? <laughs> uh, he, he did a crazy good job of doing the history and that kind of thing. And so I sent him a panic call last night. Say, hey, Mike, uh, I can't do this history thing, man. Uh, I think I want to depart. Uh, he said, well, I don't depart, but you can preach this. And so we talked it through. And as I usually do, I kind of have a, a place, but I always got to talk to my dude a little bit and get through it. But before we get started, because my wife set the page, we may as well go forward with this beautiful song that she found for me this morning, which is a further uh, statement about treat your wife nice today. So if Jonathan and Abby will cue it up, fellas, listen to this song, would you? Based on the Green Day song. <laughs> That's what I get up this morning. My wife's doing coffee. I should have known. She's drinking coffee and laughing. I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, I got something I want you to see. I'm like, you know what? I've been up all night planning this sermon. I can't squeeze something in. And then I watched it. I'm like, yeah, I can. This is great. This is really great. All right, so let's look at the passage. I'm going to um, attempt to talk about marriage in context. But I want to read the passage first. Um so in 1 Corinthians, I didn't have enough room because that passage is 40 verses long, so I didn't put it up there. I just gave you the reference. So um, we're going to do 25 through 35, I think. Yeah, up to. Um, so let me read. Now for the young women who are not, who are not yet married, do not have... I do not have a command for you from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his kindness has given me wisdom that can be trusted. I share this, I share it with you. Because of the present crisis, I think it be best to remain just as you are. If you have a wife, do not end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not get married. I heard somebody laughing in there. All right. But if you get married, if this is not a sin. If a young, man, a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, I'm trying to spare you the extra problems that come with marriage. Now let me say this, dear brothers and sisters. The, the time that remains is very short, so husbands should not let marriage be their major concern. 
happiness or sadness or wealth should not keep anyone from doing God's work. Those frequent contact with the things of the world should make, we should make good use of them without becoming attached to them. For this world and all it contains will pass away. In everything you do, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend time, spend his time doing the Lord's work, thinking about how to please him. But a married man can't, can't do, this, do so well. He has to think about earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be more devoted to the Lord in body and in spirit. While a married woman must be concerned about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. So I, because I'm curious, anybody have any idea the state of marriage in the United States today? If you think you know, raise your hand. What's the probability or what's the divorce rate? How doomed are we if you get married? Anybody have any idea? 50-50. So I thought that. I've been telling people that. And I've actually been telling people that that uh, marriage in the church is equal to or close to the divorce rate in um, outside the church. And, and I found out last night in, in my uh, shift from spring from being back to springing forward, I, I spent some time looking at statistics. And here's what I found out. Let me share with you what I found out. So what I found out is this, that the divorce rate in the United States is actually about 32 to 33%. So um, the likelihood that you're going to be divorced is slimmer than we, or, or the likelihood is less than we thought. And we found out, I found out, now there's some controversy um, about the divorce rate in the church. Some statistics say that if you're in the church, your divorce rate is lower. And some studies actually say your divorce rate is higher, and they've both been done by Christian groups. Um, I'm going to land and say, because when I looked at a couple different studies, this lady's material kept showing up, especially from 13 to 17. So I looked at all the way back to um, um, almost 1964 to look at rates. To look at, I found something that was interesting. Did you know that the, the, the um, acceptance of biracial marriage in... Uh, what did I say last night? 60, 50, 57 or something like that. The, the, the acceptance of biracial marriage was almost like um, 86 to whatever's left over. 86 against. Right? And among white folks, it was 96 to 4. In 2017, it's flipped. 
So almost nine, almost in some studies, almost 98% of people, attitudes have changed about who should be married and that kind of thing. I found out this, that, that if you say you go to church and you say you're a believer and you don't really go to church, your divorce rate is about the same as someone who isn't a Christian or who's an atheist, which is interesting. The only time that improves is if folks are in fellowship. I won't say going to church, but I'm saying involved in fellowship, either this kind of fellowship, a Bible study, that kind of thing. There's a bit more of an integration of faith, and then what we know is that the divorce rate goes down. So here's, I want you guys to stand up for a second. Everybody stand up, look around. I'm going to do a little bit of, I know, you know, if you think people are ugly, just don't look too long. <laughs> that kind of thing. Now, here's what I want to do. Uh, everybody up to Brett, who's the tallest guy in the room, okay? Everybody up to Brett from the back, sit down. Okay? Now, the people standing represent 53% of you guys have a high likelihood, at, even in the first marriage, and the stats go down a little bit, but in the first marriage, to, li to live 25 to 30 years happily. 53%, right? Now I want from everybody from Travis down to sit down. Because that, that's a little less than a third. But about 30% of us inside this room, married, are in a struggling marriage, which, which I was surprised. I thought it would be higher. What they call struggling. Not divorcing, but struggling. Okay. So everybody sit down. Thanks. So we're going to take a look at what Paul has to say about the steps of this thing and what's going on and that kind of thing. So here's what I want you to think about. So that's the stats. And Paul puts his thumbprint on that, on that and makes a proclamation. He says, and I'll rephrase it, the marriage challenge, that's what he calls it. And what I want you to understand is that Paul's not in this particular case saying you shouldn't get married. But what he's saying, and we'll get into it, is there is a challenge. And the challenge implied in the word trouble, you could read it as affliction or tribulation or whatever. But the, the, the word that seems to make more sense is the marriage challenge, colon, a place of many distractions. Okay. And what is Paul focused on? If we look at Paul's focus and what he's thinking should happen is, and if we look at the perspective from the Corinthian church, Jesus is left and he's with the Father. The world hasn't been any more a challenging place than it has been now. And in the Corinthian church, apparently, Mike has shared this, but I looked I looked at a couple articles and I asked Google, what is going on with the Corinthian church? And Google said back, it's a mess. It's a mess. And I read a couple articles about how messy the church was. And I think the church was messy because there was divisions. But I also think the church was messy because of 
the kind of diversity that the church had and and the people that had been coming to the Lord. And, and if we don't have strong leadership, which Paul was trying to do, then you have chaos, right? You're either going to have chaos on one end or rigidity on the other. Okay, neither of which is good. So that's the perspective. And Paul's notion was saying this is a dangerous and challenging time. But the language there also implies that we could not be in a greater opportunity than we are right now. That's what he's saying to his church. We have a chance, and the church was growing. We have a chance to share the gospel with people who would never, who may not ever hear it in a small circle in Corinth. And Corinth was a big city. We got lots of chances to share. So from, from Paul's perspective, the Corinthian perspective, that was what was going on. And from Paul's perspective, he's saying, hey, man, we got to have a heaven focus. And everything we should do should flow out of grace. And the, what comes out of grace is the desire to glorify the Lord for what he's done. The desire to praise God for what he's done. The desire to serve one another in love. Um, and the desire to remember the grace we've received and also fight for the grace we receive. See that Paul clearly understands that grace is a gift that you just don't put in your back pocket and it wears well. You put it in your back pocket, it slips out like some of your wallets do, or you put your you put your license in your purse and you sit your purse someplace else. We have to be mindful of remaining in grace and fight for grace. And people were coming into church. And sprinkling and salting in a little bit of law. Just a little here, just a little there. And what happens is, I remember, see, before I started understanding this stuff, I used to chase it. Somebody would say to me, my best friend said to me, AJ, man, I'm glad you're a Christian. I'm like, yo, that's cool. Like, I, I'm not telling everybody. It's, not, it's the 80s, and I became a Christian in 1980. I go home, I tell my best friend, the only guy I hung out with, and he was already a Christian, and he says to me, you know, you, now that you're a Christian, the next step to really be a believer is you have to speak in tongues. Some of you laugh, and that ain't funny, dude, Brett, that ain't funny. Because why? Why is it not funny? Because I started, I went, wait a minute, I thought Jesus for free, he's all everything, now What? Oh, yeah, you got to speak in tongues, dude. Like, if you really want to be the deal. So for me, because I didn't know any better, what did I just I was holding on to the TV, please, speaking to You know, I'm not putting that down. I just, it didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, dude, who do I blame? I don't blame God. I'm scared of him. I'm blaming him something must be wrong with me. Then another brother came. He said, hey, man, you, you got a strong walk, but here's the deal. Like, I don't think you're reading the scripture enough, man. And you got to memorize scripture. You know you got to memorize scripture, right? I'm like, oh, man, are you serious? Like, I could barely read. What you talking about, memorize scripture? So I start, you know. But I'm not a memorized scripture guy unless I'm teaching it. So the only verse I had up until 1993 memorized was the name of the Lord is strong power. And the righteous one to not say. It's the only verse I had memorized. 
I had some laws, you know, don't kill, that, that stuff. I, but actually, we know brain science-wise, that's written in your brain. Did you know that? That they're actually now neuroscience, neurotypical. If you're neurotypical, you have a moral center that's written, and it's a slot in your head for law that's designed in. That's why the marketers know that if you're up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you probably don't feel very good about yourself, so we're going to give you some fat pill exercises, or we're going to give you some yoga, or we're going to give you a diet strategy, or we're going to give you something to buy because your brain goes, oh, i, I got to do something. And law doesn't re- allow for gifts, get something. It, 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 it requires us to do something. Okay? So Paul's saying we got to fight for grace. And the fight for grace isn't something that we do this with. It's something we do this way. Let our hands hang down. We be still. And God already says, I, I got the fight, dude. I already won it. Let me, let me box Ali. I can beat him. I'm like, nah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kick your butt, Lord. Nah, I got him, dude. And I let my hands hang low. And so Paul's saying, marriage is him then. That's the, that's the, that's the other look at trouble. It's this sandwich that happens, which I'll talk about later. It's hemmed in. And it's hemmed in because we're, we're, he says, marriage has many troubles. And part of the problem is there's distractions, but now because I'm married, I'm hemmed in. And the him and in is, and it's appropriate. He's not saying, this is a problem, no, you're a bad Christian. No, he's saying, when you get married, you're hemmed in now because you have divided desires. Not, not that you didn't have them before, but it might be, if Paul says, I'm called to, it might be better and less apt to be distracted in certain ways if I'm not married. But since I am married... There's a good distraction in Ephesians 21. Paul calls us to it, which is submit you one another, submit you one to another out of reverence to Christ. So Paul lays the test. My job is to love my wife, and my wife's job is to love me. And Paul says, that can be distracting. Sometimes you might lose what's important in this field, and it's normal. He says to later on, I don't want you to worry. What he's saying is, I don't want you to worry. And he's not asking you, the worry isn't tied to my behavior. It's tied to my relationship with the Lord. And he says, the trouble you have, don't worry. God got it. You're good. But understand. Right? So I'm like, whoa. That's crazy. So in the passage, Paul says early on in, in 7, he says something that gets twisted, but I, but you you miss the spirit of what he's saying when he says husbands should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, which is her right as a married woman. Nor should the wife deprive her husband. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over her body over his body to his wife. So do not deprive each other of sexual relationships. Don't. Broaden that out. Don't shrink that. Oh, no, don't shrink it. What he's doing there was radical. 
Because in that society, there was a hierarchy. And what he just did was take women and go boop. And take men and go boop. And put them on the same page. And then call them to the same responsibility. Marriage is inside service to your wife or to your husband. And your job, your job is to attend to her. Now, here, you hear the division. So I'm married, and my job is to honor my wife, and my job is to love my husband and love the Lord. And all Paul's saying is, be ready, y'all, because you're going to be doing this. Look in different ways. You're going to be ADD. Right? And, 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 and hear me, he's not calling that a problem. He's just pointing out the reality of what the complicate, how complicated that is. We start out with our wives, then we raise kids. And then those, those tensions can pull us to myopic vision. So Taylor's my daughter, and all I'm paying attention to is how she's doing. And I forget the broader context of what she's supposed to be doing in my relationship in the context of a father who loves us both. Does that make sense? I need some love on this because I Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So the focus is there. And that critical tension, I hope I've spelled out. The problem is I can't love one thing and love two things. There's no such thing, you guys, and I'm saying this to men, but I'm also saying this to women. Scientifically, there's nobody really multitasks. That's something they say. Now, are women better at divided attention? I, moms, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Because I'm good at sleeping through the baby doing the diaper thing. And she, did you hear that? I'm like, mm, no, nah, I, I, I hear nothing. I hear nothing. Bottle, she throw the bottle side of my head. I throw the bottle back at her, go to sleep. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and that thing that wives do and moms do, that's crazy cool. Dads do crazy cool things too. And we do things that the other one can't do. But it creates attention. And God's saying, here's the deal. Hold the tension. Remain in it. Don't trade one out for the other. Love me and love your wife the best you know how. And hold on to the fact that I got you. I got you. And I love you. And I'm committed to you. And I'm going to get you through this. And don't rely on your muscles. As soon as King Sin says you can do this on your own, and he's in your head, and you say, oh, yeah, I got big guns, baby. As soon as you start looking at your trap, your guns, you're gone. He got you. You're under his influence. So that pressure to love my wife, love the Lord with all my heart, to stay focused, to, 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 to balance those things and, and to remain and then hold and trust. It, all Paul's saying is, man, oof, I wouldn't want to be y'all. That's what he's saying. I wouldn't want to be y'all. But you're called to it. So those of us in the room that are married, it's a calling. You're called to it. And, 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 and I don't mean that as an obligation. I mean that as an opportunity. You're called to it. 
it's holy. It's something deeply, deeply sacrificial in marriage. It's something deeply sacred in bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Deeply sacred. And Paul said, he doesn't say sucks to be you. He says, glad I, I, you know, I've been called to this. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Because it's tough. It's tough. So marriage is troubled. And as I'm looking at the statistics, I, I ask the question, why do you think marriages are troubled? Externally, why do you think marriages? More today than ever. Well, so I, I you know, I put my phone out. Google. Help me understand why marriages are troubled. And Google says back to me, because I got Google's the girl in my, on my phone, so she, she talks. Hey, Jay, this is what's going on. Here's what she told me. People are looking to marriage with high, high expectations for marriage to be the end-all, be-all. When I marry, Lori, it's going to be over, dude. I'm in heaven. I'm floating with the Scooby Snack doing this. It's good. Right? She's going to be everything for me, and I'm going to be everything for her. The second thing is misplaced loyalty. As soon as I make that first expectation, then I set her up, and I'm loyal to that version of life. And if I'm loyal to that version of life, guess what happens here? Can't be loyal to two places. I can't be loyal to one that feeds two, but I can't be loyal to two places. I'm loyal to God, and that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but there's a different thing that happens there. So high expectations and misplaced loyalty, and as people in our culture gets more liberated, now it's not just men who have high expectations of marriage and their wife. It's women also who have high expectations of their husband in marriage. And now marriage becomes another one of those things where we covet. We look and, and we say, well, my marriage ain't like that. How come? And, 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 and we get sold a bill of goods about what marriage is going to be like. I remember the first time me and my wife fought. It was in Glacier Park. And, and I, I remember thinking to myself, we may as well just go ahead and get the divorce. I, I think if you ask her, I probably said it out loud. Just divorce me then. <laughs> I, I did, and she looked at me like, "What the? Where did that come from?" Because I, you know, I'm a kid who grew up through two divorces, so that's my reality. A fight must mean we're done. Because there's no no anybody get married and get handed the manual. I don't know anybody got married and got you know somebody slid them the manual. Hey, yo, dude, man, you better read this before you do this. No, you you're in it, and it's tough. And then and then and then you and then we act stupid with each other. And, you know, and it's a weird thing that happens once the rings go on. The rings go on, and then we we we, we our bellies come out. You know, and you start eating like a horse, and you know you you don't care about your girl. You she don't care about you. We walk around, yeah, what up? Ah, bad breath. Ah, oh, and, that ain't how, we, when I was dating her, that wasn't how I was rolling. I was like, yo, man, we, wait, my shoe's tight. Yeah, how you doing? As soon as we get married, <laughs> you don't care. 
It's not good, man. It's not good. Here's what I think happens. That's a front because we all live life from four positions. Fearful, insecure, experiencing unimportance or not being valued, and agitated. Did you hear what I said? Fearful. Okay. Insecure. Under or no valued. And as a consequence, agitated. And some of you agitate like this. And some of you agitate like this. You just keep it in and fill the bag, keep filling the bag, keep filling the bag. And when somebody accidentally pokes the pen, somebody's going to get slimed. And it's going to be 14 years of it. Now, and I can say that because I'm one of those ones. The other thing my wife would do when we would fight is I would have things saved up for three years. She was like, Jay, you, what are you talking about? Are you seriously talking to me about what happened two years ago? I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. I had not said a word to her about that. I'm just saving it up. And then something, she pokes it. She's like, what the? I thought we were fighting about the, the corn syrup. I'm like, no, because two years ago. I'm a knucklehead. Y'all got to understand that. I'm a straight up knucklehead, man. Very difficult to be married to. <laughs> Because I'm a knucklehead, and I own that, and I, 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 I say I'm sorry. So what happens when I'm fearful, insecure, and I feel unimportant, and I'm agitated? I'm going to have Taylor come up here. Taylor, come up for a second. Okay, you, you stand here. She's my wife. Okay. Now, I, I know that ain't right, but we don't do it anymore because she's the closest. All right, so, so I say I'm a Mary Taylor, so... I get down on one knee. She don't know this, but I'm, and I'm not saying this to her, but I'm doing this. Please meet my needs, please, please. And she don't know. She think I'm standing up like this. We friends. She, oh yeah. And she's down there. Get down there. One knee, hand up, head down. She, and she begging too. And I'm like, I'm thinking she's standing up. Why? Because she's fearful, I'm fearful. She's insecure, I'm insecure. She doesn't feel important unless I smile. I don't feel important unless she smiles. And if I don't get those first three done, we both agitated. Does that make sense? Okay. Give her some love. Thank you, Taylor. So Paul says something really important around verse 29 or so. He says something that could get slipped in and in in, in this Bible, it, it, it even kind of slipped in when I was reading it. He says something really important that we need to pay attention to. And it's just like an aside when he, when he says it. He says, it, right around verse 30 or 30, 31 or 32, he says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. And it's sandwiched in the phrase. So it's not one of those ones that's at the beginning of the phrase or at the end so you can miss it. He says, I want you to be free. 
I want you to be free of anxiety, free of worry. Not worry, free of worry about what? First of all, quit looking at your behavior. Gaze at God, glance at your circumstances. Second of all, quit looking at all your failures with your wife or your husband. Gaze at God, glance at your wife. Here's what I found out in my marriage. If I gaze at God and glance at my wife, what I don't know, because I'm just glancing every once in a while, I look and she looks different. Because when I'm not gazing at her, desiring, which isn't necessarily good or bad, God can work with her. He works with her in spite of me, but... But if I'm saying, okay, God, deal with me, you got it, right? Okay. I look over and she looks different. And we've been married almost 35 years. She looks really different in crazy cool ways. Crazy cool ways. From what I thought was great already. And I'm not sure I look. Uh, hopefully I've improved a little bit, but I don't know. You know. But, but that's what happens. And here's why. See, the fearful, insecure, unimportant agitation is a function of father hunger, not wife hunger, not husband hunger, not job hunger, not attachment hunger, not kid hungry, not, not house hungry, not car hungry. It's father hunger. And all of us suffer from father hunger. And Jesus pointed to the father and said, hey, my dad wants to be your dad. My dad wants to call you and is calling you son and is calling you daughter. And he's saying this, my dad sees you the way you are and calls you daughter and son. Don't get it twisted. Don't think you have to become something you're not. My father designed you this way and he designed in the struggle. And he calls you son and he calls you daughter. And he called those of you who are married, Mary. And he's not looking down at the disaster fight that you had last night and go, oh, my God, what did I do? What did I do? He's not doing that. He's in, oh, my kids down there acting crazy. But I love them. And they're, and they're doing, doing the thing the way it's supposed to be. Because Father Hunger answers four things. It takes those fearful, insecure, and unimportant, agitated things, and he does this. See, with father hunger satisfied, I'm secure. With father hunger satisfied, I'm seen. And he calls me his kid, and I'm important. With father hunger satisfied, I can be soothed, right? Be still is this. Hands hang. Bring your agitation. Give it to me. He doesn't call the cool, calm, who, all who are cool, calm, and collected, come to me. All who got it together, come to me. If you have no issues, come to me. That's not what he says. He says those who are weary and agitated, come to me and find rest. Kick, he takes you from weary and agitation, and he doesn't kick it out. He provides something as well, peace. And you start to be able to look at the two parts of you and go, okay. 
I'm this and I'm this. And you see that? He says, yeah. Okay. I can breathe. And the last one is, Father Hunger is satisfied when I come, when I come to understand safety. I can safely approach the throne of the Father in the time of need and not have to worry about wrath. We studied it in our Bible study yesterday. Because Jesus freely died, wrath, hostility has been removed. He doesn't look at you and go, what? No, Randy, what the, what are you doing? He doesn't look at us that way anymore. We may look at him that way and expect it. But that's not. His face is calm. It's a smile. It's affirming. It's Helios. Your willful disobedience does not rattle him. You can trust him. Crazy. So father hunger is satisfied when I come to understand I I have a secure base. And I, I am seen and I matter. And I can be soothed. I can trade weary and angst for peace. And I can trust God. He's a safe father. So don't worry. I'm finishing up. Stay with me. I see somebody down because Arby's or whatever is calling you. I understand that. I understand that. So let's look at marriage doing well. There's, there's a guy that I really love named John Gottman, who's a Jewish guy, um, brain guy, and he talks about marriage well, and I'm going to try to finish here. So the challenge to marriage is, from Paul's perspective, is to love one another, serve one another in love. And it's paralleled. And, 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 the, and the challenge is in, in Galatians, he also tells us that because of our flesh, not our sinful nature, but because of just the way we're designed, that's going to be tough to do. We're always going to have the tension of doing the things we don't want to do and doing the things we want to do. But our call in marriage is to love. And what John Gottman says is there's two things that need to happen, actually three. That we need to build a friendship with the cement of fondness and admiration. So I'm going to glue something together. I'm going to use, I use a sandwich metaphor. The marriage sandwich is a sandwich with two slices of bread. Fondness for my wife or my husband and admiration for my wife or my husband. And the meat in the middle is friendship. I know what makes you tick. You know what makes me tick. You know my favorite color. You know my quirks. You know my strengths. You appreciate. You're fond of me. And you admire or appreciate me. That's the sandwich. And that sandwich has what I wrote in the thing. Four birds. Okay? If I eat the sandwich, (coughs) I should have things come up. Now, in a good way. Not bad breath words that, you know, like you see on TV. But what should happen with that friendship is because I have a friendship where I'm fond of my wife and she and I admire her, one, we, we handle problems. We deal with conflict. 
Two, in conflict, I turn towards her. So Randy, come in for a second. So me and Randy are, yeah, so I don't have my Jayhawk stuff on, so we're going to be beefing. <laughs> so we beef, and if I'm having a fight with him, he's going to fight with me. Typically what happens in marriages is when I turn, you turn. We turn away from each other. Okay. The problem is when you turn away from each other, really damaging things happen. John Gottman says he can assess the marriage success in 15 minutes because when they come in, they're not just only turned, they're contemptuously turned to, away from each other. Because when I turn away, I can start to create a crazy reality in my head. And then I re-look at my history and change it because he hurt me or I hurt him. Okay. What we want to do is turn towards each other. Okay. And, and deal with each other. So that's the second thing. Thanks, dude. The third thing is that I allow my wife and my husband to influence me and to influence my decisions and my perspective about life and about myself. Does she have a say that you listen to? Can she change or affect your decision? Can she change and affect your perspective on life and on you? If she says something great about you, do you really hear it? Or do you dismiss it? If he says something awesome about you, do you hear it or do you dismiss it? it, it you have something you want to do and he and, and you ask him, for an input, do you really listen, or is it courtesy? Influence. And if I can do that, then I can solve problems, and, and I can find purpose greater than our marriage, greater than our family, greater than our kids. I can, and God will give that to us. He's already given it to you, reasons to exist, Right? And if that happens, now I start to find contentment in my marriage. But understand, that doesn't happen on a steady line. Contentment's like this. Back up. That's the, the reality of things. And Paul's trying to say that. Okay? And here's what I want you to remember. I'm finishing now. I want you to remember a couple of things. First two things I want you to remember is this. All he, Gottman calls the masters of marriage. Did you know the masters of marriage fight just like the disasters of marriage? Did you know that? They fight as intensely. They fight as infrequently, as frequently, and they fight as bad as the disasters in marriage. What's the difference? Masters know how. To turn towards and repair. Disasters don't. Disasters stay with their back. And then what happens is we're in a house called marriage. I turn my back on my wife. This is a wall. Pretty soon I cut the bricks out and build a window. And then pretty soon I cut the window and cut all the bricks out and make a door and I'm out. That's what happens when I turn my focus away. And I can't hold that focus from without the Lord. Okay, And in some cases, 
in, in some cases. And if you walk out, because some of you have, and like mine, I grew up in two divorces. And I'm, what, what I want to say is, if you've walked out, Paul's saying, I got you. Don't be looking back, oh, I can't believe I made that mistake, blah, blah. God got you. He may call you to be single. He may call you to marry again. See, back in the day when I grew up, divorce must have been some sign of sin in your life or something like that. It's not. It's just marriage is hard. And sometimes we make a decision, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And as a church, we need to love folks instead of looking down their nose. Oh, they didn't make it. No, dude. Love them. You don't know what was going on in that room. They do. And, and hopefully, and I've seen hope be a place where people in busted relationships can come and nobody's looking down their nose. Remember that. They fight. And here's what John Gottman says. In the midst of the fighting, we miss the opportunity to have the conversation or the dialogue about the, about the need. We're so busy fighting about our wants and our covet desires that we miss having the conversation about what we need. And the fight is the opportunity to turn out of the fight and say, honey, what do you need? I can hear what you want. That's the demand. But what do you need? And then I also want you to remember, Paul says time is short. The word there is short or bridged. I mean, it's collapsed. And, and he was saying that then, and we're now. We're in 2018. But I'm telling you, time is short. Don't assume you have tomorrow or the next day. We need the Lord. And if you've been called to a marriage, like it or not, I need her and she needs me. And, and, and we're called to this deal. <clears throat> Secondly, I want you to also remember what your focus is. But remember, the normal part of having a focus on the Lord when I'm married is that I'm going to get distracted and know that when I get distracted and I start doing this and I look up, he ain't looking at me with an ugly face. He's like, oh, yeah, about time, dude. Where you been? I'm like, oh, I got a little distracted. I'm, I'm good. He's good with it because he called us to it. He ain't going to call us to something and then beat us up for being in it. Does that make sense? It's not going to happen. Here's what I need you to do. Face the reality of the tension that comes with marriage. Quit running from it. Learn to talk to each other. Have the dialogue. Learn to turn towards. Learn also to know. I interviewed in my doctoral program, I interviewed, we had to interview four couples that were married more than 30 years, and here's what I found out. Those old folks, which are, were my age now, I was a young guy. I was a young guy when I interviewed him. Okay? What they told me was 25 or more years, they said, to the marriage, I interviewed four, four couples because we were doing research. And one of the things I'll never forget them saying was this, and they all said it, but they said it different ways. That's something, son, you have to learn how to deal with and live with because it's never going to change. I mean, he has been this way since I married him, and he's never going to change. 
but I love him. And there's some things you got to put your heads together and battle and get it out of your marriage. Gottman says there are solvable problems and perpetual problems. Perpetual problems are character differences. Instead of complaining about it, you learn to live with it. And you make jokes about it and you poke each other about it. But it quits being, quits coming with all this contempt. It's just, the, the dude is weird, dude. I'm just telling you. He's weird. That's my wife talking about me. He's weird. He's artistic. I don't like him sometimes. You know, those things. She said to me the other day, I hate you. You know, like, what the, why? What I do now? Well, because I'm a goofy, multi-gifted dude. And she's like, what? You know, and I'm like, yeah. And instead of going all, getting all, can I say this in church, butthurt about it. I, I just laugh with her. You know, like, you know, like, you know what? I, I, I am kind of strange to be married to. Yeah, I get that. So, so understand, face to reality. And then lastly, I want to say this. Hold the tension and trust God. Right? Hold the tension. He's in me. He's with me. Good's ahead of me, guaranteed. Right? He's in me. He's with me. And say it this way. He's in us. He's with us. Goods ahead of us. Guaranteed. Amen? I'm called the worship team up. We'll sing you out of here. Before I pray, I just want to remind everybody to, um, to sign up for the banquet. Um, Where's that at? Is that in the, in the back? In the back. So if you want to sign up for the banquet, please sign up. Let me pray. Dear Father, we just thank you for Paul. We thank you for his fight and, and his words. They're so clear and, and uh, so encouraging to our hearts. Um, but today I, my heart is heavy for marriage and I understand the call that we've been called to in this in this place, and I also understand the call when you when marriage doesn't work. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would encourage everyone's heart here, remove the shame and remove the stain, and um, help us to look up and know that you're in us, that you're with us, and that good's ahead, and that's good's guaranteed. Help us to understand and and appreciate the partners we have are designed by you to be in our life and. Uh, help us to work it through if possible, and if not, uh, to move to the next thing in a graceful, loving way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.